Turn, if you would, to the fourth chapter of the book of Romans. We started the fourth chapter last week. We almost made it halfway through the lesson. Oh, well. What's new? Chapter 3, we ended up with the large discussion about justification by faith, that we are not justified by fulfilling the law because we can't and we don't want to. But God has provided salvation for us through the finished work of Jesus Christ. And that was the conclusion of chapter 3. But to a Jewish audience, the question would be, but what about Abraham? So that brought about chapter 4 that discusses the fact that Abraham was justified by his faith. He believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And last week we talked about that and we jumped over to the book of James where it says, no, he was not saved by faith alone, he was saved by his works. And we discussed the fact that what James and Paul are talking about are different parts of the timeline of, Paul's, of uh, Abraham's life. Before Abraham had done anything except believe, God credited him with righteousness. But James is dealing with the fact that that righteousness, that justification, did produce fruit. And later in his life, when he was instructed to sacrifice his son in obedience, he started to do that as evidence of the faith that he had. It was not, it was not the cause of his faith. It was the product of his faith. It came out of his faith. And we looked at the timeline and we noticed that up in chapter 15 of the book of Genesis is where Paul quotes for the statement that he was justified by faith. And then down in chapter 22 of Genesis is where James quotes when he wants to talk about Abraham being faithful. So we made it through most of the first half of chapter 4. We rushed through the second half, so I'm going to read part of that again just so we remind ourselves of what he was talking about. Verse 9. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. Once again, look at the timeline, the chart of the book of Genesis. Circumcisions was introduced in chapter 17 of the book of Genesis, Several chapters before that was where God credited Abraham with righteousness. So the circumcision came after, not before. You see, you have to get your mind into the mindset of the Jewish audience in the church in Rome who would be thinking about this. And they go, well, you know, we're on the inside because we have the sign of the covenant. Abraham had the sign, his descendants had the sign, we have the sign, we're in. And Paul is saying, no, he was declared righteous before all of that. And last week we had a discussion about the fact that baptism, the modern sign of the covenant, 
is not a cause of your salvation. It is not a work that is necessary to save you. It is simply a sign of what God has accomplished in you. So, he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. Which came first? It's quite obvious. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believed without being circumcised so that the righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. We're actually going to have a long discussion about this when we get to chapter 9. And we discuss the fact that not everyone who is in Abraham is in Abraham. And chapter 10 and 11, where we talk about the descendants of Abraham who are descendants by faith, that would be us Gentiles. If you're not from a Jewish background, that would be us. The faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness before circumcision, before the acts of righteousness, and as we're going to see in just a moment, before the giving of the law. So that was the end of last week's lesson. We'll pick it up in verse 13. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. It didn't come by him keeping the law. For if it For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. (sighs) Let's jump ahead. One more timeline. There it is right there. Abraham had his son, Isaac. Isaac had his son, Jacob and Esau. Jacob had his 12 sons. The 12 sons and Jacob went to Egypt, and they stayed there for 400 years. Moses led them out of Egypt. This was last year's lessons, if you remember. Moses led them out of Egypt. Moses went up on the mountain and received the written law. Abraham was, what, 500 years before this event? Question, was Abraham justified before God because he had kept the written law that had been given to the Jewish people? Obviously not. It wasn't there. If you're a good Jewish audience, you're sitting there thinking, if it doesn't work for Abraham, it doesn't work. So what about Abraham? So Paul says Abraham was justified by faith. But we are in the community, we are in the covenant, and circumcision is the sign of that. Doesn't matter. Abraham was justified before circumcision so that everyone, circumcised or not, could be part of the covenant. Yeah, but we received the law. Yes, you did. But Abraham was declared righteous before the written law was ever given. Now remember, back to chapter 2. We've had long discussions. 
long discussions about the fact that God has written the law on our hearts. We are without excuse, whether you're Gentile or Jew or Greek or barbarian or pagan or Baptist. It doesn't matter. I'm not sure about that contra. Anyway, it doesn't matter. You are without excuse. But to the Jewish community, the giving of the written law sets them apart. They are special because they have the written law. In fact, Paul will agree with that. He agreed with it in chapter 3. He's going to agree with it later. It was a blessing to receive the law, except for one problem. They couldn't keep it. They couldn't keep it. But if you could have kept it, if you could have kept it, then what does it say? For if, verse 14, for if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. First off, what is the promise that is worthless if salvation is by works? Well, the blessing that was given to Abraham was the fact that all of the world would be blessed through his descendants. Not just the Jewish people, but all of the world. Out of you will come many nations, and out of your seed all the world will be blessed. Who is that seed? Jesus Christ. The promise was the promise of salvation to Abraham and to his descendants both physically and spiritually. As I said, we'll have a lot more discussion about that in the months to come. The promise is the promise of salvation. So question, if you can obtain this, if you can obtain salvation by keeping the law, Why is grace and why are the promise null and void? Hmm. If, 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 I keep throwing that word in, don't I? I promise you, I promise you, if you stand up right now and fly around this room, without any mechanical means. In fact, we'll open the doors and just let you fly around outside. I promise you, I will give you a million dollars. Now, I don't have a million dollars, but it's a pretty safe bet. I use this illustration because my daughter used it on me yesterday. She said, the day you finish reading all your books and magazines, I'll fly. I don't know why you're laughing at that. (laughs) It's a promise that doesn't accomplish anything. Not because there's something wrong with the promise. I mean, the promise was easy to understand. The words were simple. You just can't do it. You can't fulfill your half of the statement. The promise is null and void... If 
you are incapable of doing what needs to be done to fulfill the law in order to merit your salvation. It doesn't work. Does that mean there's something wrong with the promise? No. We've discussed it. We will continue to discuss it in, I think, next week's lesson and in the weeks to come. There's nothing wrong with the law. The law is perfect and the law is holy. There is nothing wrong with the law. There is something seriously wrong with you apart from the work of grace and the promise that God will provide salvation. So, I've formed a religion, and the only people who are in are those people who can be perfect from the day they're born until the day they die, in thought, word, and deed. And we, well, I don't think I'd make it. It would be null and void if that were the condition. If the only people who can be saved are those who keep the law, grace is meaningless and the promise is meaningless. Why is grace meaningless? We talked about the promise. What about grace? Well, once again, I tell you that in my grace, I'm going to give you some huge reward if you do something you can't do. That doesn't sound very gracious. Grace, God's unmerited favor toward us, is fulfilled when he gives us not what we have earned, but what we haven't earned, what we have no merit to acquire, but he gives it to us out of his love and grace. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath. Now, we've talked repeatedly about the word law and the narrow context of it of the written law, the broader context of it of the law that God has written on our hearts. And at times we've even discussed the broader context of the laws that we make up in order to earn our way to God. This right here is talking about the written law. He's addressing the Jewish community. They think they're in the covenant because of circumcision. They are descendants of Abraham, and they have the written law. All that law brought was wrath. All it was was demonstrate that they couldn't keep it. I've got this law written on my heart. I know it. I can deny it. I can suppress it. But I have it. But in my suppressing it, sometimes it gets a little fuzzy. So all of a sudden, God gets a particular group of people together, and he says, here, I'm going to write it down for you. There's no ambiguity. There's no discussion. This is the law. You know that law that's written on your hearts? Eh, okay. You've been suppressing it so long, it's a little vague. This isn't vague. Number one, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Number two, don't take the Lord's name in vain. And so on and so on. It's really not that hard to understand. Unless you have no desire to do it. And then what does the law bring? It brings wrath. 
You, the Jewish community, were blessed and honored by God to be given the law. But you, the Jewish community, are more guilty because you have received the law. Now, let's make sure we understand. We're all guilty, okay? It's not them that are guilty. It's us that are guilty. But he's addressing the fact you think you're special, and you are. But the blessing that was given to you has produced wrath because you refused to keep it. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. Huh. Where there is no law, there is no transgression. So there was a day and time where Moses went up on the mountain and God handed him the law. Does this mean that before that point in time, nobody was guilty? Well, if you think that, you have a little trouble with all the chapters of the Bible before that one. Adam and Eve were guilty. Cain was guilty. You just start filling in the blank. All of the world in the time of Noah was guilty. They were guilty. They had violated the law of God. Then what does it mean? Well, it's interesting because this word transgression here is kind of different than just the word sin. It's not just I've done something that violates the will of God. It is that I have done something that violates the written word of God. I have transgressed the written word of God that was given to me. Okay, Jewish community, you think you're special because you're a descendant of Abraham, you have the sign of the covenant, and you were given the written law. And you're right. You are special because you are a descendant of Abraham, because you have the sign of the covenant, and you have the written law. But what that has accomplished is made you more guilty. Everyone has sinned since... Well, we'll talk about Adam and Eve in a couple of weeks, I guess, after Easter. Everyone has sinned since Adam and Eve. Everyone is guilty in the eyes of God. Everyone is in need of a Savior because of their guilt, because of their sin. But you, Jewish community, who have the written law, have added guilt because it was written down and presented to you. Now there's an interesting observation that comes out of this. We as a society, we as a world, have the written word of God. We can sit here and have huge debates about what your conscience tells you to do or not tells you to do. But God has written down what we ought to do. God has delivered his word to us. Question, are we blessed because we have the written word? Yes, most definitely. If we take that written word and ignore everything in it, will that blessing do us any good? No. All it does is heap more condemnation on us. 
it's an interesting discussion. You grow up in a society like ours where the word of God is proclaimed regularly and you choose not to respond to it. There are implications in the scripture that you are increasing your guilt by rejecting the word that is presented to you. Don't think it's those people who are rejecting the law. Remember that we know more than we actually put into practice. Verse 16. This is why it depends on faith. It depends on faith. Why? Because you're a descendant of Abraham. Doesn't do you any good if you reject the faith that he had. You have the mark of the covenant. Doesn't do you any good if you reject that covenant and break it. You have the written law. It doesn't do you any good if you break it. That's why the only hope is faith. This is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherents of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Notice he is not saying to the Jewish members of this church, Abraham is the father of us all. He is saying Abraham is the father of us all. Abraham is our spiritual father. It is his faith that demonstrates to us the necessity of salvation by faith alone. What does that faith look like? We're going to have a discussion in the rest of this chapter about how that faith is demonstrated in the life of Abraham and how we, too, are to demonstrate faith. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, he gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. What a strange sentence. Calls into existence the things that do not exist. You've heard the old joke, right? God and the evolutionist get together and they're going to have a contest. Make life. Okay? So the evolutionist grabs a pile of dirt and he starts to do his experiment. And God says, no, you've got to make your own dirt. What was the universe created out of? Nothing. God spoke and the world came into existence. Genesis 1, 1. God spoke and out of nothing, out of that which did not exist, came the world that we know today. Hmm. What else comes out of that which does not exist? Let's keep reading. Who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered 
his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew stronger in the faith as he gave glory to God. God created everything that we know today out of nothing. What did God do to Abraham that demonstrated he was able to create something out of nothing? We had this discussion last week. It was a nice chuckle. Let's suppose. Let's just suppose. I don't want to show of hands. We find the oldest couple in this room. The oldest couple. You remember this from last week, right? And let's say they show up next week and they say, we're pregnant. Okay? We laugh at that. Why do we laugh at it? We've got a basic understanding of biology, right? We have a basic understanding that wounds cease to produce eggs. We have a basic understanding that at some point the functions stop. And in the case of Sarah, there was some indication that the functions had difficulty for a while. She was barren. She had no children. By all outward appearances, she was incapable of having children when she was of childbearing age. And now she is well beyond childbearing age. Life in the womb of Sarah does not exist. But God said, Abraham and Sarah's descendants would be a blessing to the world. So here you have it. I mean, let's face it. God has given you a promise. This isn't one of those general promises. This is a specific promise to you. At some point in your life, you kind of become impatient and you try to fulfill that on your own through Hagar, through Ishmael, didn't turn out well. You can read the history books. You try to do it on your own. But at some point you realize the factory is closed. Do you give up? Or do you believe? And do you believe? And do you believe? Abraham believed that God would accomplish what God said he would do. What is faith? Believing God will accomplish what God says he will do. That's faith. You've got to understand. I mean, I have trouble envisioning this. You know, I read in the scripture a promise of God. And I go, there's a promise of God. I want that fulfilled today. And I'll give you till tomorrow if today's busy. Today, I want that. And if it's not fulfilled by Tuesday, I begin to wonder whether God's really, you know, in control of things. God must be asleep. God must be falling down on the job. Because God hasn't done what God said he would do. But you see, the problem isn't with God. The problem is with my faith. But Abraham believed, and it was credited to him as righteousness. 
Let's back up a little. I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. The world did not exist. God spoke and called it into existence. Life in the womb of Sarah did not exist, and God is going to call it into existence. Life, spiritual life, in the physical life of us apart from God does not exist, and God calls it into existence. That which does not exist exists because God says it will exist. In hope, he believed against hope. That is an odd phrase. You've got to admit that, right? What does it mean in hope against hope? By any logical discussion or reason or understanding, it made no sense. Earthly hope was dried up with Sarah's womb. Earthly hope was dead. But here's the fascinating thing. God wants to get them to the point where earthly hope is gone, so spiritual hope will say yes. Remember this discussion that we had at the end of chapter 3? We're going to have it again in the weeks to come. God is going to save us in such a way that there will be no room for boasting. Why is that so important? Because God wants you and the world to understand that salvation is a work of God. Not a work of me doing really great things. It is a work of God. God is working in the lives of Abraham and Sarah to produce an offspring in such a way that the world will know that it's a blessing from God. It was not an earthly thing. It was a heavenly thing. And it is interesting if you start reading those chapters, there's discussions about the peoples around them noticed this and said, hmm, God must be favoring them. We must make an alliance with them because God has done something miraculous. What does God want to do in our lives? Something miraculous, something that will happen in such a way that the world will not understand it and that he will get all the credit. Hope against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he has been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead. Okay? I don't think he was dead. Okay? But if you look at biology, okay, 100 years old is a little old to be bearing children. Now, it's interesting Sarah's going to die eventually, and he's going to marry somebody else, and they're going to have a lot of children. Hmm. Interesting story. We won't go there. A hundred years old, as good as dead. Or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's wound, 
No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. How did Abraham have that faith? I find it fascinating. We look at the life of Abraham. God blessed him. He blessed him with stuff. He blessed him with land. But the stuff in the land was not what he was after. He was after a descendant. And every day, every month, every cycle, you could understand if Abraham and Sarah said, no, not now. No, not now. No, not now. You and I all know couples, young couples, who are wrestling with trying to have children and something just doesn't work. And we understand the difficulties of not this month, not this month, not this month. But can you imagine doing that for decades and decades and decades while at the same time knowing that God had promised an offspring. I don't know about you, but it would be very easy to say, God, I'm going with plan B. Where's Hagar? We laugh at that, but don't we do that? God, you promised me a good life. And all I'm getting are beatings, we're back to the life of Paul, and stonings, and this, and that, and the other. But you see, the life that he promised was the life of joy, the life of fulfillment, and the life of eternal life. It wasn't that it would be easy, or that you would get everything that you wanted How do we live in a world that seems to not provide the promises that God says he will give? And after a while, we go looking for solutions of our own. We go looking for plan B. Why do we do that? Because our faith is weak. We are like the disciples who in the midst of the storm look at Jesus and panic. And he says, don't you have any faith or oh ye of little faith? Abraham had faith. God promised. God keeps his promises. God will keep his promise. In fact, the implication is very clear. The more impossible it got the more faith Abraham had. Huh. At this point, I thought of uh, getting distracted for, I don't know, six, seven, eight weeks, six, seven, eight months, I don't know, and start looking at the promises that God has given us. Not the promises that he gave to Abraham, but the promises that he has given to us. I have come that you might have life. I have come that you might have salvation. There's hundreds of them. 
And we could have a long discussion on each and every one of those promises. Do I really believe God is going to fulfill it? Huh. Maybe that one. That one looks good. I'll, I, he'll, I'll, that one, I'm not sure. He's not. Remember the illustration I gave a couple of weeks ago, taken from C.S. Lewis, that we view God as the defendant in a trial, and he has to prove his goodness to us. And if he does, then we'll acknowledge him and let him stick around. And we judge God. What arrogance. God is the judge, and God has promised, and God will fulfill his promises. More about that in the months to come. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. As he gave glory to God. He gave glory to God because God didn't keep his promise? No, he gave glory to God because he knew that the longer it took, the more glory God would get. The more it seemed impossible, the more it was impossible, the more he realized that the God who called into existence that which did not exist would act and fulfill his promise. But he grew stronger in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Several weeks ago, we had a discussion about faith, and we used the passage in Hebrews. Remember, faith is, go ahead, the substance of things not seen, the evidence of whatever. Here is a definition of faith. You ready for it? Fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. What does it take to be saved? What does it take to have salvation? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Do you know what that is? That's a promise. Well, how do I know? We're going to have a long discussion in chapter 9, and it's going to drive you crazy about the doctrine of election. You know it's coming, right? But let me let you in on a little secret. I can sit here as an unbeliever worrying about whether I'm part of the elect or not, and all I will do is go crazy. Or, by faith, I can believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and the promise is, I will be saved. That's the promise. By faith, Abraham believed God. And it was credited to him as righteousness. Now it is interesting to me, that timeline of Abraham's life. Early on, it says, Abraham believed. Abraham went through a lot of tough times in his life. Abraham was not 
perfect by any stretch of the imagination from that point on. Abraham grew in his faith. He increased his faith, he grew, and he sinned. But you know what? He believed God. With whatever level of faith he had, he believed God. And it was credited to him as righteousness. If I sit here and try to dream up the strongest faith I can, no. Take the faith you have and respond to the gospel. Believe that God will keep his promise. Fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our our trespasses and raised for our justification. Abraham believed the promise that through his descendants all the world would be blessed. What is the promise that we are to believe? That Jesus Christ died for our sins. That he rose again to justify us. That we could be declared righteous before God. Abraham is our spiritual father. He is, he is the example for all of those who are justified by faith alone. Before he had done anything, that all the glory would be to God, God saved Abraham and God saves us. It was counted to us, same phrase that, reply, that, that applied to Abraham, who believed in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord. What does it take to be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. We had this discussion several weeks ago. It isn't our faith It is the object of our faith that is of importance. People have faith in a lot of different things. But our faith is in Jesus Christ in the same way that Abraham's faith was in God and his promises. Faith is what makes us understand that when God promises salvation to those who believe... God will fulfill that promise. Who delivered up, who was delivered up for our trespasses, he died for our sin, and he was raised for our justification. It is interesting, there's all kinds of theological discussions, and since we have one minute, we won't go into them. But you know, there's lots of discussions. Okay, he died, he was the sacrifice. We know about sacrifices in the Old Testament, right? The blood was shed, the atoning sacrifice, the penalty was paid for the sin, raw, raw, we're done. Not a one of those sacrifices ever came back. Not a one of those sacrifices ever rose from the dead. So why was it important that he rose from the dead? 
It was important because it demonstrated his victory over death. Trust me, if he had died for our sins and not risen from the dead, we would have been in trouble. Paul says later, if he be not risen from the dead, our faith is in vain. That's why we have a lot of fun at Christmas. Presents, nice, great stuff. But the celebration of the Christian faith is in Easter because it is the resurrection. So, conclusions. Abraham is the father of those who are justified by faith. Is he the father of the circumcised? Yes. But he is also the father of us who are justified by faith. God calls into existence that which does not exist. He called into existence the world. He called into existence life in the womb of Sarah that was barren and advanced in years. And he calls into life, spiritual life, in us when we believe. Faith believes the promise even when the facts appear otherwise. It isn't Pollyanna. I like that illustration because my daughter was Pollyanna last year. It isn't just wishful thinking. It's accepting the fact that God will accomplish his promises even when the external facts don't lend themselves to us believing it. And finally, what is the promise that we have? And that's like I said. We know the big one. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. But start reading the Bible. In fact, if you want to be safe, just start in the New Testament. And start listing the things that God says will happen. And God says they'll happen. Therefore, they're going to happen. Let's close in a prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the example of Abraham. I pray, Lord, that we too, like Abraham, would grow in our faith, that the small faith that we have to believe would grow into a faith that would live a life expecting the promises to be fulfilled. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.